friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And you're in for a very special episode this week, guys, because this is our Walking Dead episode. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And uh, James, uh, you've got red on you. Oh, that's right, guys. Now, before you get too excited, although I like to imagine our our episodes usually excite some kind of excitement, don't you, Trey? I would hope so. Yeah. Now, before you misunderstand things, we should probably clarify that when we say Walking Dead, we are not talking about the Robert Kirkman property of the same name. Right. That's an image comic, um, and it's a TV show, and we don't really cover either of those things. No. We, honestly, we don't, neither Trey or I really even watch that show anymore, but... Literally had literally had to Google some of the character names a minute ago. Yeah. So we're not talking about Rick Grimes today or Negan or Daryl or uh, Carol. We are instead going to be talking about zombies or the actual Walking Dead. Now, again, we're not talking about the kind of zombies you are familiar with from shows like The Walking Dead or George Romero films. We're strictly talking about creatures returned from the grave through mystical means. Right. Um, So curses, voodoo, secret rituals, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And because of this, this week we are talking about two books. First up, we have another Marvel magazine, Tales of the Zombie Number 1 from July 1973, and that's finishing up our issues from July 1973, as well as starting our coverage of August 1973 with Supernatural Thrillers number 5, featuring the debut of The Living Mummy. And uh, and really, we've got sort of two characters that are rounding out our cast of Marvel monsters here. Uh, Simon Garth, who's come up a little bit before, he briefly appeared in Dracula Lives, um, but this is really sort of his big featured named debut. Right. Even though, and, technically, the character appeared 20 years before this, but we'll get into that in the episode, in the review right, proper. Right. Uh, and then, of course, uh, The Living Mummy. This is the first time we're seeing it as well. Um, and it's just jumping sort of straight into its own uh, solo story. Right. But... Without any further ado, and before grass grows in our own grave, let's go ahead and go to a quick break, and we'll be right back with Tales of the Zombie number one. They say you only get one chance at life, but for childhood sweethearts Missy and Johnny, true love will never die. He came back from the dead for me. He's a stinking zombie, you idiot. He may be dead. Right. But his heart still beats for the girl that he loves. I would love to go to the prom with you. Go for it, Johnny! Pretty damned active for a dead guy. My Boyfriend's Back, rated PG-13. 
Welcome back to Believers, and as promised, we are going to go ahead and start our coverage of Tales of the Zombie number one this week. Now, the cover date on this one is July 1973. This is another one of our Marvel Horror Mags. It's one of our big black and white beasties, and most of the stories we cover this section are going to center around one character, a one Simon Garth. Right, and... and they're loosely interconnected. They're all set sort of around the same time. And as I suggested in the, the opening, this is very much our introduction to the character. Um, that said, um, we're still sort of figuring out how to deal with these anthology books, these big magazines that have so many stories to cover. Um, so I think what our approach this time is going to be uh, is that we're just going to try and uh, take each story on its own and give you a brief summary, go through the creative teams, and talk through each segment as its own story. Um, but if you have suggestions or, or uh, feedback to uh, how we're covering these magazines in particular, we'd love to hear from you. Right. Now, Simon Garth, as a character, was actually introduced 20 years before this magazine. In July of 1953, so almost exactly 20 years beforehand, in a little magazine called... Menace number five from Atlas Comics, which at the comic historians among you will remember was the precursor to Marvel Comics. First it was Atlas, then it was, well, no, first it was Timely, then it was Atlas, then it was Marvel. I was going to say, this is what technically makes Simon Garth a Stanley creation. It's true. Uh, he's one of the only characters. Only of the main characters we're covering on this show that actually do qualify as a Stanley creation. Right. I think the only one that you could maybe make the argument for is possibly Morbius. In in that Stan in the office probably pointed at some of the other people in the room and said, Hey, let's get a vampire character. We can put him in Spider-Man. Right. Kind of the same way that, you know... Damon Hellstrom, who we will be talking about fairly soon on this podcast, came about because Stan wanted to publish a comic where Satan was the main character. And right. what we eventually got was uh, Son of Satan. Right. And you can hear a little bit about the origins of that character in our interview with Roy Thomas in a previous episode. Exactly. Uh, episode before last. Now, so we are going to talk about that zombie story from minutes number five a little bit later in the episode but we're gonna start our episode with a story little story called altar of the damned i think trey you've got this one yeah altar of the damned is uh written by roy thomas and steve gerber uh pencils are by john bashema uh inker is tom palmer and the editor is roy thomas as the sun sets over the Louisiana bayou, the voodoo queen and her people prepare for an ancient and violent sacrifice, whose victim will be a man named Simon Garth. At the last moment, however, the woman cuts his bonds. He runs from the scene with the other voodoo pr practitioners close behind. As Simon hides in the woods, he thinks back to the events which brought him to this terrible situation. Simon Garth is the wealthy coffee king of New Orleans. As he leaves for work, he cautions his daughter Donna against associating with hippie tramps and threatens to fire his gardener, Gyps. Donna sees something fall from Gyps' pocket, which he reveals is a voodoo charm meant to bring luck 
in gambling and love. Meanwhile, Simon is insisting that his company increase production, despite his partners protesting that the employees are already overworked. The argument is interrupted by Garth's secretary, Layla, informing him that his upcoming flight to Haiti has been confirmed. Back at home, Gyps takes a break from his job to creep on Donna, skinny dipping at the pool. He attempts to assault her, but Simon arrives just in time to beat Gyps up and fire him. He also finds time in between to slut shame his daughter. Later that night, Simon leaves for a dinner party, but Gyps attacks him from behind and sells him to be sacrificed. But then, it turns out that the voodoo queen is in fact Layla, who has long harbored a secret love for her boss. She swears not to kill Simon, leading to the events of the opening scene. And then, in the present, Simon is once again attacked by his ex-employee, Gyps. He is stabbed in the chest with the very shears he criticized earlier in the story. Gyps buries Simon's body, but then has an idea of how to prolong Simon's suffering even further. He calls for the voodoo queen to perform the rite of the zombie, and slowly Simon begins to rise from his still fresh grave. Without thought, Simon attacks Gyps, until a magical amulet is placed around his neck, placing him in the control of whoever possesses the matching amulet. Gyps orders the zombified Simon Garth to go into the swamp, and Simon Garth the zombie has no choice but to obey. So this was a pretty good story, I thought. This is a really solid origin story, for the most part. Yeah, although it kind of ruins the surprise of the previous... Oh, sorry, of the next story in this magazine. It it does. It, it's... Uh, I almost wish they had, they had led with the reprint, even though I think the idea is that they're going chronologically in terms of narrative... I wish they'd gone with the reprint first and then flashed back for the whole thing. Although, I actually went and read Menace number 5 first, which I'm really right. glad I did. Uh, but... How, how much How much of the text is different? None of the text is different. Okay, good. And we'll get more into that when we talk about uh, the next story. But this story is definitely playing with the fact that it is not a code-approved story. Absolutely. Um from the opening uh, splash page um, we have basically naked bodies all over the place yeah and we get we see a lot of Donna I mean we we see basically her naked butt and right. the strong suggestion of naked breasts yep. although they don't you know straight up show some things right I mean you've got strategic placement of uh, hair and like water lines and things like that. Exactly, but um, mm-hmm. well, just it very much is uh, pushing the boundaries of what what you might expect to see from a Marvel comic. That being said, it is beautiful jump to some artwork. It is. It is. Um, especially, I love the close ups, the the play of shadows on faces. It's really effective. Um, Simon Garth as a human in the opening scenes uh, really captures this look of just utter terror. Yeah, being an old Avengers fanboy like myself, I have fond memories of John Buscema on that title with Roy Thomas, actually. And Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I do just want to call your attention to uh, the top of page 13, 
where Simon punches uh, his gardener in the face. Um, That is just a beautiful impact. Yeah, although he looks very square and kind of 1950s guy in in that when he's alive and then he's a long-haired oh, yeah, yeah zombie. he totally transforms yeah he, he he's a long-haired bare-chested zombie when he when he becomes a zombie right uh, it's almost like i mean it, it, again because this is sort of retroactively adding an origin for the character they have to end up with a certain character design it's just interesting that in his human appearance they didn't try to suggest any of the features of what he would become. No. I find it interesting he's the Coffee King of New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. And they name drop Haiti for some reason. Yep. Uh, possibly huh. to suggest the Haitian history of voodoo. But we don't actually end up in right. Haiti in this story at all. No, no. Um, and and it, it's sort of playing with some tropes from early van- uh, early zombie stories um where um th- there is a connection between sort of voodoo and manual labor like zombies used as as labor force and so this guy being this sort of capitalist who is exploiting and clearly according to his partners overworking his employees and so there's this kind of turnabout in him becoming the zombie the sort of being whose existence is that of sort of labor and service. You know, you could make this argument for a voodoo socialist revolution. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's not far off. That's, uh, I, I think that's sort of definitely uh, something that's happening in the subtext here. In fact, um, I kind of want that on a t-shirt now, voodoo socialist revolution. <laughs> and, like, we'll come up with a design and have Liam print t-shirts. Right. <laughs> We'll make a mint, I tell you, a uh, mint! <laughs> and, and so, while zombie movies, like zombies in popular culture, I guess, um, by this point in the 70s, I guess things had shifted more toward the Romero style. Night of the Living Dead was out, at least. I, uh, Dawn of the Dead was not yet. No. Um, but, um, but there was already this history of zombie movies that are much more in line with what the Simon Garth story is doing um of course white zombie the uh bella lugosi movie um which even if you've never seen white zombie you've seen parts of white zombie it's public domain so anytime anyone wants footage of bella lugosi looking creepy they don't go to dracula because you gotta pay for that they go to white zombie because it's public domain yeah and i've seen a few zombie movies of that vein uh, from around the same time for instance there's king of the zombies which is a really unfortunate kind of black exploitation, and not even like the cool kind of black exploitation like Shaft or um, Blade, who we saw last episode. The uh, all the black people are servants or superstitious comedy relief. Right. Um, there's also uh, from closer to White Zombie. White Zombie was, uh, I guess, in the early 30s. Um, about 10 years after that, there was I Walked with a Zombie which was uh, not universal or any... That was an RKO film. Um, but that one is gorgeous and a classic. Um, it's one of Val Luton's horror movies um, and is vaguely a Caribbean reinterpretation of Jane Eyre, which is kind of cool. Um, 
but that one's really great. Uh, the Plague of the Zombies was Hammer's attempt at a zombie movie, um, which also dealt with sort of the voodoo traditions of, of zombies. Um, it's not one of Hammer's best movies, but it, it, it's fine. It's sort of a well-made uh, period piece kind of thing. Um, and that gets you up to about 1966. Um, but once Night of the Living Dead happened, you saw less and less of those kinds of movies. Yeah, and there's actually a text feature in here by Tony Isabella talking about zombies in popular culture up to this point. And he does name check Night of the Living Dead and how really gruesome it is. And even though sure. those are generally considered to be zombies, he does make that distinction that they are definitely different from the voodoo tradition of zombies, which for the most part they are sticking with with this book. Right, and even Romero in uh, the earliest planning for Night of the Living Dead and, and the way he talked about it back then didn't initially use the zombie word. That sort of came about through pop culture absorbing the movie and responding to the movie. Um, he referred to them as ghouls as, as sort of a way of differentiating them. Yeah, I think they are zombies um, because they kind of have the traditional behavior we associate with voodoo zombies. Although, really, they're not controlled by somebody else. They eat the flesh right. of the living. Yeah, the cannibalism is sort of a new thing. You can transfer zombieism through the biting another person. Right, it, it becomes a disease. Yeah. As opposed to a curse. Really, I... The only thing I can think of of why the Romero zombies got labeled as zombies is the shambling arms in front sort of thing. It, I, I think so. Uh, that and that they they rise up out of their graves. Yeah, they they have the the look of a zombie, the the torn clothes, the uh, sort of uh, decomposing features, and they they pull themselves up out of their own graves. Yeah. Um, but the missing link in, in all of that is um, uh, I am Legend, the the Matheson story. But um, in that story, they're which vampires. is a vampire, yeah, they're vampires. It's a vampire story, but. When it got made into a movie with Vincent Price, even though they are referred to as vampires, they're they're more like zombies. Yeah, that this is true. And 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 Romero, when he was younger, he was less inclined to do this. But as he got older, he acknowledged how much he was indebted to Matheson's "I Am Legend" in conceiving *Night of the Living Dead*. So so that's your through line, I think, in in sort of getting it to something like. Uh, like, like getting from one version of zombies to the other. Yeah. So, but all of that said, um, I I just I really love the look of Simon Garth in this comic uh, as a zombie. I, I his zombie form is just really effective in black and white. Yeah. Although I think a lot of the credit for that needs to go to Bill Everett, who act sure who drew the Menace Number Five story, which we should probably talk about now. Yeah, let, let's go ahead and, and uh, shift gears into, into that story. Definitely. And that means it's my turn to give my summary. This story is titled simply Zombie. It's reprinted from Menace Number 5 from July 1953. Writer is Stan the Man Lee. Penciler is Bill Everett. Inker is Bill Everett. Editor is Stan Lee. A withered, lifeless form stands alone in a swamp. This is the zombie. The zombie is roused from a stupor by a single command. Come, 
and makes its way silently across the swamp to a dilapidated house, where he finds his corpulent master, drunk on wine and low on funds. The fat man orders the zombie to steal for him, which the zombie obeys, stalking into town and murdering a Mardi Gras reveler for his purse. Before he can take loot, however, he is confronted by a gun-wielding policeman and is forced to flee. The fat man, outraged at his undead servant's failure, instead orders the zombie to bring him a woman, who the fat man will then pretend to rescue from the zombie, forcing her to succumb to his lust and gratitude. Upon arriving at the woman's house, though, the monster recoils at the sight of a familiar blonde beauty, instead returning to the rundown shack and strangling his rotund master, for how could he be expected to kidnap his own daughter? So yeah, um, we're not... Like I said, the the 1973 first story in this magazine kind of ruins the surprise of the 1953 reprint here. Right, uh, because the, uh, from Menace, I'm sure this was one of several stories in that anthology, all of which had some sort of twist ending to them. Yes, but of those, this um, was definitely and- one of the strongest. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and, and it works really well as a short story, um, even taken without the origin we just read. And I think most of that has to do with the Bill Everett artwork. This zombie is really creepy looking. Yeah, and he's even more withered here than he is in the earlier story. Right. He's got this kind of lantern jaw and the, the, still like the way the, the cheeks like are sunken into themselves and the wrinkles and creases. And you can see his rib cage. Yes, it's really good. Um, like I'm looking, I'm looking right now. I'm looking right now at the close, like the progression of panels as uh, as he's whipped. Yes, because you get a really good look at his body and face there, and and it's just so great. Definitely. Um. So so you mentioned that that this was modified somewhat from its original version. Uh. What what sort of things did you see? Uh. Different. Well, for one thing, Simon Garth is giving lo- given longer hair here. Okay. Uh, maybe to make him hipper, even though I, I do I do wonder if the design of the zombie himself was was meant to appeal to young readers, and thus he has sort of a hippie appearance. Right. Even though the the living Simon Garth we saw in the previous story was very much the nineteen fifties sort of square businessman. Right. The there's not that much changed. However, Donna, who we see again in this story, who was in, who was actually introduced here, and of course, you know, the way how it goes with reprints. Donna looks completely different uh, in this story. And I've posted the a comparison between the two panels on our Twitter feed. But Donna in the original Menace story is a brunette with her hair up in a bun. And here... She is a blonde, as we saw in the previous story, and she's been redrawn by John Basima. Sure, and and that makes sense, because, um, well, wanting to match the other story makes sense. And I think probably, in terms of appearances, the original Donna looked a little more hip for the mid-50s, as opposed to the Donna of the reprint is maybe a little more appropriate for an early 70s audience. Right. I mean, John Buscema is not credited in the story. It, the only person credited is Bill Everett, but it's sure. fairly obviously John Buscema. Yeah. 
No, you, you can actually because in the panel where she appears, um, you have a close up of Simon Garth, and then she's in the background, and there's a difference in art style. Yes. Also, they add the snake pendant, which will play a significant role later in this magazine. Right. But besides that, there's no, not much has changed from the in the story, and okay, it's a really strong story carried by some really strong artwork. Yeah. Um. The only thing that doesn't quite make as much sense is that he climbs back into his grave at the end. Mm-hmm. That that feels more like the ending of a a one-off short story than something that's going to continue. Right, unless all of our stories are going to end with him return with him reburying himself in his own grave. Right, right, which is possible. Who knows? Yeah. Again, the big strength here: the story is very much of the 1950s horror anthology vein, where we have the "it was his daughter the whole time" ending, which that no longer carries a whole lot of weight because, of course, she is. We saw her in the last story. Yeah, but. We get some strong horror writing here from Stan Lee, not something we know him much for, I think, in the modern day, where we usually associate him with being the guy who created all the superheroes we love. Right. Um, and I think what, what maybe is interesting is that the payoff sort of changes because of the previous story. So instead of having the twist of the the revelation that it's his daughter, instead... The, the twist is that Simon is able to break the hold of the amulet. Yes. And he kills Gyps. Right. And and that 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 moment of sort of vengeance um, carries more weight because we now know what their prior relationship was. Yes. Which, it is a very satisfying death for Gyps here. Um, I do want to just quickly note, I meant to say this with the last story, but... Um, it's really unfortunate that his name is Gyps. He's, it's, the implication is that he's a gypsy of some sort, right? Well, right, but that's, that's not, Romani people don't typically like that word. Yeah, sorry. But, what, what what's the unfortunate thing you're referring to here? I'm, I may be missing something. Uh, uh, no, just, just that, that, that is what he is called. That, that. Okay, so the suggestion because... that he is Romani and this is somehow related to voodoo. Well, no, just that that gypsy and its variants are considered an offensive term for Romani people. True. Is all I'm getting at. And they also have no connection to voodoo. Right. No. And 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 he very clearly in the first story doesn't really like he he has bought some baubles and things trying to like benefit from it. But he doesn't really know what the voodoo people do when he takes Simon to them. No, he just is like, hey, they will pay me money if I give them a, a sacrifice. So I'm giving them my boss who I don't right. like. Right, right. So he, it, it's an unfortunate depiction of uh, a Romani person, um, both in behavior and in naming. And, and that's, it, it's of its time, I, I guess. that That's not much of a defense, but that's all we've got. Yeah, it's probably best that he dies here in the second story. It, yeah, I mean, I'm... I was concerned he was going to become more of a recurring character, so this is this is for the best. Yeah, I, I, definitely for the best. Uh, and he, let's be fair, he was a disgusting pig too. Right, and I don't think he's named in 
the in the the menace story he's he's just the zombie's master or whatever because he's wearing the amulet right but but also like like the 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 name and sort of background of the character wasn't really devised until um uh roy thomas and uh steve gerber did the sort of origin story like as with as with many of these anthologies uh a lot of characters just don't get names exactly now speaking of names and this is kind of ties into the origin of simon garth himself the name of the book tales of the zombie was the first thing that was come up with for this book and roy thomas roy thomas in response started looking through marvel's old horror books for books that could be used for to to reprint in tales of the zombie he comes upon this story from menace number five zombie and it seemed a natural fit but he was also kind of taken with bill everett's design here and the story itself to where he realized hey we've caught we're calling something tales of the zombie well what if the the zombie actually referred to a character and they ended up uh, framing these other stories around this reprint from minutes number five hence why roy thomas gets a co-writing credit on this first story because it was his idea to be like hey take this character from minutes number five and frame the other stories around this story and basically took it to steve gerber and says write this right the other stories in this flesh it out yeah yeah, the other stories that deal with simon garth in this issue are all credit to steve gerber it's only the first one by roy thomas where he made the suggestion okay take this minutes number five story and run with it yeah that makes sense and that that definitely sounds like the way marvel operated back then yes where you know some one person in editorial comes up with an idea and passes it along to a writer and because of that sort of shared discussion it ends up becoming something of a co-story or co-write credit right it's part of why there's uh, so much debate sometimes over some of these 70s characters uh like like ghost rider so then as i said we do have this little uh i guess article by tony isabella talking about called the sensuous zombie talking about portrayals of zombies in media up to this point and again like we stated uh we really didn't have the romero uh diseased zombie that we are so used to in our media today hadn't really become part of pop culture yet really romero's zombie was the only example and right then we have another story which trey i think you're gonna take a summary for this one Right, this one is uh, sort of the odd one out, and it's called The Thing from the Bog. It's written by Kit Pearson and Marv Wolfman. Uh, The pencils and inks are both by Pablo Marcos, and the editor is Roy Thomas. In the peat bogs of Denmark, a man and his stepson dig for what they hope is treasure, but instead they are horrified to find a bog man perfectly preserved. Supposedly, Men have been buried in these bogs for over 2,000 years, all criminals, murderers, and thieves. Thomas, the stepson, thinks back to before his stepfather Frederick found him in the bog, when his witch guardian prayed to Satan over the corpse of a bogman. The power the witch conjures turns on her, though, and she dies, 
and as she does so, she makes Thomas promise to bring back her people, the Bogmen who have been buried for so long. Back in the present, Frederick strikes Thomas for not being sufficiently frightened of the Bogman, and he promises to come back later to burn it. However, Thomas returns that night to the Bog, and casts his own spell to raise the Bogmen, but the newly revived Bogman grabs him, making him remember the stories his witch guardian told of when the world sorcerers split between those who lived on land and those who dwelled in the bog. The land-based warlocks prevailed, and the bog sorcerers were banished and buried. But the bog people's powers grew stronger and sought out a witch who might revive them, Thomas's guardian. But now, chased by the very bog people he raised, Thomas decides he must try to stop them, and he rushes to get his stepfather's help. Frederick and his men try to fight off the Bogmen, but their bullets are useless. Thomas rushes in to explain how to defeat them, but Frederick blames Thomas for their resurrection and kills him. With the boy dead, the spell to stop the Bogmen is lost, and so Frederick and the others are left to be slaughtered by the Bogmen. So... I guess we're all doomed and the Bogmen rule the earth now? I, I get it. This one's really more sort of fairy tale like it is, and it, like you said, it really is the odd one out. Um, it, it's set in Denmark. It has nothing to do with the sort of uh, voodoo traditions of uh, the Simon Garth story, nor does it have much to do with the Romero stuff we were talking about earlier. Um, no. But it, it, it's rooted in this other European tradition of uh, walking dead who emerge from a swamp. Right. These zombies are created through witchcraft. Yeah. Satanic witchcraft, no, no less. Yes, yes. Um, it's It feels like a weaker story to me than the Simon Garth stuff. I, I agree. I it, it, it feels like... It's almost like it's assuming that I already know things about this story that it's not telling me. Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, you know what Bogmen are. I'm like, do I? Right. I, 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 I'm not from Denmark. The only thing I know about Denmark is Reptilicus. And you know, Reptilicus is silly, but he really illustrates the wide array of monsters all over the place. Not just in Japan, but across the planet. An A to Z gamut or gargantuan panoply. Example, please. One name a land. Belize. Oh, geez. Easy peasy. Maze of maze. Seeing the Yucatan, you can meet El Cadejo. In Belize, they believe in him. They're not afraid to say so. Scotland. Nessie's living up in a lot. How about Poland? Scary, scary crow named Babata. So, so it's not just Godzilla? Well, duh, crow. There's a lot that could kill you. Hey. Prom. Sorry, crow. Okay. Roast. Show. Yo, Jonah, how's the chorus go? Every country has a monster they're afraid of in their nation every monster has a country yeah station they call their home how about this for a page jump bottom of one page but as frederick quarter speaks his stepson's thoughts drift to another time when the bogmen meant something to his young mind for thomas remembers and then the caption on the next page. Remembers two years past, before his stepfather Quarter had found him on the bogs. Remembers his witch guardian. Remembers as she prayed to a silvered serpent moon that night. That's a pretty big jump from we found a dead body to witch. Like secret yeah. past with a witch in the bog. And I have to say... That's a big jump. If they were going to add some random red into the comic... That cloud of Satan and his minions striking down the witch 
would have been a great place to add some red to the issue. Really would have. Um, unfortunately, it looks like the only color they used in this book was green. Yeah, and I suppose that's because of the green of the zombie. But funnily enough, they only right. used that to add color to some caption boxes and parts of the reprint Swirling the mists and things. Yeah. Yeah. So no red on this issue. There's a little bit in, um, I think, the final Simon Garth story. Okay. I really thought this story was going to end with the boy finding out somehow that, like, his adopted father had killed his parents somehow. Yeah, but then the witch shows up and prays to Satan, and things go off the rails. Yeah. Like, we're given the, the witch's origin story, where... She is drowned in the bogs as a witch and immediately comes back as an old woman, an old hag. Right. And kills everybody except for the little kid. Right. That is not what I would call a glow up. No. no. And we also get, just before that, the, the sort of ancient history of sorcerers who apparently are divided among the land people and the bog people. Right. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's because I've been looking at, like, D&D history lore, right, recently. But it kind of reminded me of that, where you have, like, splits between dragons and different churches being founded. But this isn't that. This is the Marvel Universe, kind of, maybe. I'll tell you what this is. This reads like one of those Atlas horror anthology stories with the twist at the end. But it's like the person who wrote it was on acid. I mean, that's possible. <laughs> it, this was the 70s. And it was Marvel. But, you know, like, it has that basic structure of building to a twist ending, where the the father killing the son ends up killing everyone. But the way it gets there is just so weird and convoluted. Okay, apparently Kit Pearson is a Canadian novelist. Interesting. I wonder if this is based on a short story or something. It's possible. It might be a different Kit Pearson, because this one didn't start writing yeah. novels until, like, the 1980s. Uh, huh. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. Huh. Only thing I can see written by her is Tales of Zombie Volume 1, Issue 1, and Monsters Unleashed Volume 1, Issue 3. So, interesting. I'm not sure. Not sure if it's the same person or not. But in any case... You've also got Marv Wolfman on a co-writing credit, and I wouldn't necessarily call this prose his best work either. No. Definitely not compared to the Dracula story from Dracula Lives, or even the Blade right. story from the previous episode. I will say, some of the, the visual compositions are nice, especially the really supernatural stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the, the conjurings of Satan with the witch, or even when the boy casts the spell later... Like, those those sequences are really well done. Yes. It just doesn't feel like it builds them. It doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. No. And you're right. This this does very much feel like a fairy tale sort of story. Mm -hmm. Including the ending of him killing the child in order to, he thinks, rid the world of the Bogmen. But, of course, the child was the only one who could have stopped the Bogmen. And hence he is doomed right. himself. Right. Yeah. It's fine. It's not like an offensive story or anything. It's just not... It's just a very strange one. Yeah. So we should probably move on to the last story in this issue, which means it's my turn to do a summary. Right. 
This one's called, funny enough, Night of the Walking Dead. Writer on this is Steve Gerber. Penciler is John Basima. Inker is Sid Shores. Editor is Roy Thomas. At the morgue, Donna Garth is asked to identify the strangled corpse of her former gardener, Gyps, for a police detective, Sam Yeager. Yeager is investigating the missed disappearance of Donna's father, as well as the murder of Gyps, and feels there may be a connection between the two cases. He has Donna look over some evidence from Gyps' shack, and a young woman is drawn to a snake medallion, sensing that it has some sort of connection to her missing father. Thinking the medallion to be worthless voodoo fakery, Jaeger allows her to take it. While holding the medallion, Donna wishes that her father will return to her, and somewhere in the swamp, a shallow grave stirs. On her way through the police parking lot, Donna is mugged by a heroin-addicted purse snatcher who hopes that the wealthy-looking blonde beauty's bag may have what he needs to feed his craving. He is disappointed, however, to find only $3, a curious snake medallion, and a gun. Thinking he may as well make the best of it, the junkie uses the weapon to gun down a wealthy young couple on a night out in the town. As he turns to flee with his blood money, the now murderer runs into Simon Garth, the zombie, who has been drawn by the call of the medallion. The addict tries to stab Garth with no effect, and then makes to fire his handgun at him. Yet before he can pull the trigger, cold and possibly strong hands twists the gun around so it now points back at the junkie. The gun fires, killing the junkie on the spot, and the zombie retreats once again into the night. You know, I really wasn't expecting so many of the stories in this book to be centered around the story, the saga of Simon Garth and his daughter and his disappearance and his murder, but I'm really digging it. Yeah, it, it takes the anthology format and, and makes it into this sort of interconnected, serialized origin. It's like you get the first three issues of Simon Garth the comic all in one book. Yes. We do have a fairly unfortunate scene here where Simon Garth fights and brutally kills some hunting dogs. Yeah, I don't know why it is at this point that... Because this is several Marvel monster characters now that have been unnecessarily violent toward animals. Yes. Where... In a, pre- in a recent Frankenstein issue, we saw the monster brutally kill some dogs, sent out to find, hunt him, and now Simon Garth is brutally right. killing some hunting dogs that just came upon him in the swamp. And it's really not consequential right. to the story except to add some action to it, which I'm not really sure right. it needed. Right. No. It's And it's it seems unmotivated. It does. Except to teach the hunter who trained them to kill a lesson... And it's like, uh, yeah, that that's still it's I might get in trouble for this analogy and I apologize. It's kind of like those girlfriends who of the hero who gets killed in order to teach the hero a valuable lesson. You know, the girl in the refrigerator phenomenon, except in this case, I mean, it, it's it, the it, dog it's, who's suffering. I mean, it, it is a, it's a it is similar in that in both cases, it is a violent act purely to exploit certain emotions you know like like it's not it's not adding a whole lot uh to to the story right and i'm not again i'm not trying to belittle women here i'm not trying to compare women to dogs i'm just saying animals do have certain rights and just to straight up brutally brutally 
on panel murder these dogs just for I don't know. I just like puppies. Sure. No. I just think, I just I just well I just read this. I was like poor puppies. And and they're rendered fairly photorealistically, so it's kind of upsetting. Yeah. So yeah, no, it, it's I I did not enjoy that part of the story. Now once it gets back to the town, and and Simon uh, is sort of uh, almost sort of getting revenge for his, on behalf of his daughter, although he doesn't necessarily realize it. Yeah. Um, and so I guess just as a, a point of clarification here, the the amulet's just sort of on the ground now, right? Uh, yes. Although like it just got I dropped. imagine the police would find it because it was in the heroin addict's pocket. Right, and it and it falls at one point. Um, yes, it falls. Yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, as the woman dies, uh, he pulls away, and the jacket pocket rips open. And the amulet falls out, and he doesn't have time to retrieve it. Right, and it is on the ground on the last panel. I thought yeah. I thought that because of the perspective, I thought that was a manhole cover, but no, that's the amulet in the foreground. Yeah, the the perspective there is is a little off. Uh, yeah. but but yeah, I think that's supposed to be the amulet in the foreground. Yeah, but no, it's definitely on the ground there. So I assume the police would find it. Right. So, I. I do like the idea of the amulet and that it offers lots of possibilities for future stories. Yes. Because with a, with a zombie character that's unable to communicate, your narrative really has to be driven at least partially by what characters it interacts with. And the amulet gives the opportunity. I can see it passing through a lot of people's hands. Yes. And the zombie being drawn to him like it was here. I thought it was very interesting that they had the amulet fall to donna and already Mm -hmm. donna has become a really compelling character through her limited appearances here yeah yeah she uh very surprisingly got sort of uh fleshed out more in this one in terms of uh sort of pathos and motivations and things like that um over just a couple of pages right and you really feel sorry for her because her father seems like the only person she had in the world. But it'll be interesting to see what they do with her going forward. But the nice thing about this is they do what has been done so well in Werewolf by Night and the other titles that we've commented about where they establish a supporting cast for this character right away. Right. Um, and we haven't really mentioned the art, but it's basically the same art team as the first story. So it is just as good. Yes. It is, again, very good job to set my artwork, working off that very strong Bill Everett character design for the zombie, and it is good stuff. There's a really great sequence of panels, uh, the bottom of page 62. It's when Donna first gets the amulet while she's in the uh, police station, and it it's like six panels across the page, just very yeah. narrow columns, and it jumps back and forth between Donna looking at the uh, the amulet and then Simon's grave in the bayou and then a closer look at Donna with the amulet and then a close-up of the grave and then an extreme close-up of Donna and an extreme close-up of the grave right before he emerges on the next page. It's really effective. Yeah, it is. I'm, I was kind of disappointed that the whole reunion with Donna gets derailed by the purse snatcher. I can't help but think they're building to something, though. That that they're that that's going to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah. 
I would hope so at least because again, she comes she ends up becoming the only likable character we really have as far as people directly connected to Simon. True. Now, I take that back. The 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 secretary who ends up being the voodoo queen in the first story also ended up being an interesting character. Yes, who was in love with Simon. Right. Now, the police detective guy, detective, is it Jaeger or Jagger? Um, sorry, I'm getting back to that page. Uh, I think that's Jagger. Okay, so it's not Detective Jaeger, it's Detective Jagger. Okay. Yeah, Sam Jagger of is, the New Orleans Police. Is he a little sweet on Donna, do you think, here? Uh, I don't know. Um, he lets her walk away with evidence that's implicated in two open cases he's connected to. And even says, not standard operating procedure. Yeah. It's like, this is a standard operating procedure, but I'm going to let you walk away with evidence. Right. So... He has he has his arm around her a couple times, but it seems like he's comforting her because she's upset. Because her dad has disappeared and her former gardener is lying dead on a slab. So I don't know. I mean, they, they, they make sure we are very aware in the book that she is a attractive young blonde. Yes. Yes. That, that does come across very clearly. And I'm not sure if that's just because, hey, our audience are mostly teenage boys and young men, or something else there. So, Right. But I like Donna. I, I did. Because she... You notice that her father was kind of domineering over her. Oh, yeah. No, he's awful. In that first story. Yeah. Um, where he, uh, he refers to her friend as... Uh, uh, how does he phrase it? Um, hippie tramp? Right. And then he slut shames her because she was being perved on by the gardener. Because she was swimming in her right. her own personal swimming pool naked. Right. I'm like, thinking, yes, she was alone. thinking she was alone. She is the victim there. But he right. victim shames her, slut shames her, whatever you want to say it. Basically calling her a little hussy trying to tempt the gardener. And then fires the gardener. Yeah, he says he can't think. He says he can't think of words filthy enough for her yet. Ugh. Yeah, I think Simon Garth might be better off as a zombie. I think so. I think he's a better father that way. Seems like it. I do also want to say I really enjoy the uh, couple of panels there where uh, Simon Garth jaywalks, and then the the dry the guy with uh, road rage jumps out and starts to yell at him before realizing he's a zombie. Yep. It's just an it's a nice bit of humor there in the in the middle of the story. Yeah. It doesn't really add to the plot, but still, it's it's a fun little moment. No, but it it's funny. Yeah. Like especially the wife's expression on on the last panel of that sequence. She faints. Right, right. Yeah. She she she, she <laughs> faints dead away. And it's great because you're like that clown sit right in front of me. I kill him. Well, I get my hands up. And then Simon Garth turns around and you get you his face catches in the headlights. It's like Nope, 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 <laughs> nope, nope, right out of here. Yep. It, it's, yep. It's good stuff. Nothing to see here, moving along. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think I think this reveals a lot of potential with the character of Simon Garth, the zombie. Right. And I have to say, of the magazines we've talked about so far, this one may have been my favorite. Yeah, I think because the, the stories featuring Garth tie so closely together 
You know, it's sort of parts one, two, and three of a ser- of a single serialized story. It makes for more compelling reading. Yeah. Um, the Dracula mags we've looked at, by comparison, that th- they all feature Dracula, but it jumps around in time and space, and they don't always feel like they're part of the same story. And Dracula is hard to sympathize with. Right. Even that origin they gave us, which was pretty rough. Like, I, I feel bad I feel bad for his wife in that story. I'm not sure I feel bad for him. No. But even Simon Garth being an asshole, we do feel bad for him. Or at least Sure. By proxy his family, who Right. Like clearly his daughter does care about him despite the way he treats yes. her. Um and even though he's kind of an awful entitled jerk he did not deserve to be stabbed in the chest with gardening shears right it's clear that he has people who love him like his secretary like his daughter and maybe he didn't deserve that love in life but maybe as a zombie he can earn that love right or maybe i'm adding more layers to this than they're there (laughs) (laughs) hey who knows all i know is that simon garth does become kind of a, a, a regular figure in the Marvel Universe for a little while. Right, and like we said, we saw him in the previous Dracula Lives issue. Uh, funnily enough, this sequence that we see in Dracula Lives is fairly obviously from the sequence in the Menace number 5 reprint, the, the, right. the part at, set at Mardi Gras. So even though the original story takes right. place in the 1950s, it's clear now that that story takes place now in the 1970s. Right. They have, between Dracula Lives and Tales of the Zombie, they have retconned that story into the present. Right. Which is fine, because Mardi Gras is timeless. Right. Well, and Marvel floating timeline. Speaking of floating timelines, I think this is all that we have to talk about for Simon Gar for this episode. We will definitely look forward to coming back to him in the future. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Supernatural Thrillers number five, The Living Mummy. Okay. Count Chocula and Frankenberry meet the Fruity Yummy Mummy. Hey, have a bite. <laughs> it's new Fruity Yummy Mummy cereal. Big. Yummy marshmallows. So monstrously big there. Monster Mellows. With Yummy Mummy Monster Mellows. Fruity Yummy Mummy makes your tummy go yummy. <laughs> Monster Mellows in Frankenberry, Count Chocula, and now new Fruity Yummy Mummy cereal. Part of this complete breakfast. Makes your tummy go yummy. <laughs> and we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And our second and final issue for this episode is Supernatural Thrillers number 5, The Living Mummy. Cover date is August 1973. The writer is Steve Gerber. Penciler is Rich Buckler. The inker is Frank Chiaramonti. Colorist is Petra Goldberg. The letterer is Gene Izzo. And the editor is Roy Thomas. On the Gaza Strip, Israeli-occupied Egypt two lovers discuss the state of the world until they are interrupted by the living mummy. They try to fight it off, but it is impervious to their attacks. However, he realizes these two people are not the ones he seeks, and so he turns and walks away. Days later in Cairo, Dr. Scarab explains to his anthropologist partners that he has solved the mysteries of both the lost African tribe they are studying, as well as a forgotten pharaoh he has been trying to identify. 
a single scroll of papyrus, dating to a lost era of ancient Egyptian history, tells of when Egypt had expanded its empire and taken as slaves a nation known as the Swarilis. The Swarili leader, Nkantu, was a towering man of great strength, and he quietly plotted rebellion with his people. When the pharaoh's new temple is completed, he orders all of the slaves put to death. But Nkantu and his people had secretly acquired weapons for their rebellion. The pharaoh is killed, but his advisor, Nephris, is able to consolidate power. He orders Nkantu mummified alive and infused with a mystic potion that leaves him immortal while trapped in his tomb. Sometime after, the whole temple collapses and the pharaoh barely escapes with his life. Having told this story to the skeptical anthropologists, Dr. Scarab also reveals that Nephris might be his ancestor. He marvels at the possibilities offered by studying a man who has been kept alive for millennia. Meanwhile, the mummy begins wreaking havoc in the streets of Cairo. It makes its way to Scarab's home, but finding nobody there, it takes a nap on the floor. Scarab and his partners return, and Scarab tries to kill the mummy with a pistol. This only serves to wake it up, and it demands that Nephris cure him of his immortality. The police arrive and attack with tear gas and guns, but he continues to pursue them. He grabs an electrical pole out of the ground, intending to swing it like a club, but the live wires electrocute him and leave him incapacitated. Scarab insists that the police leave the mummy in his custody so that he can study it, as the officer prays that the mummy will never live again. So, is it just me, or is Dr. Scarab sketchy as fuck? I think the first strike is that his name is Dr. Scarab. And he's wearing a scarab necklace. Right. I mean, dude has the name and look of, like, an adventure serial villain. Right? You would expect him to be a villain in a DC comic book with with that sort of telegraphing. Also, when he's just, like, out of the blue, oh, and by the way, I'm related to that evil pharaoh from this from this scroll I just read. I will say, this is, this, this is playing with a lot of tropes um, of early mummy movies, like the Universal movies, where there is usually either a descendant or a reincarnation of someone from the mummy's past that the mummy is drawn to. Yes. And, I don't know, I'm getting the feeling that somehow it's going to be revealed that Dr. Scarab is in fact Nephris. Like, I could see that. Yeah, Nephris, who has lost his memory of his past and is now this really sinister professor guy. Right, that maybe he had taken the same potion but without the mummification process. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I could see something like that, yeah. Um, it's it's an interesting origin. Like I say, it it very much follows the beats of most mummy movies as far as the backstory of the mummy yeah i i do find it interesting that Nkantu is a black man the, the it, living it, mummy that here. is interesting that, that he's from africa that, or that he is african uh not just like arab egyptian right he, he is clearly stated to be black basically right um and that is and that he is not from egypt yes he is not egyptian right he's not from He's not North African, he's from somewhere else on the continent. Right. I don't think any other mummy story that I've seen has done that. Not that I'm aware of, no. I I do find it a little bit unfortunate that they portray a tribe of Africans as slaves, but what you gotta do. And 
Right. I'm curious how they're setting up Ron and... Oh, goodness. What's her name? They had names? Yes, they had names. I, I missed that part. Hold up. Ron <laughs> and Janice. Okay. To kind of be counterpoints to Nakatu. I'm probably saying the name wrong. Uh, no, Nakantu and Dr. Scara because parts of it... They're kind of the skeptics. Yeah, but I'm wondering if they're kind of setting up an adversarial relationship between Ron and Dr. Scarab in a similar fashion between that you had between Nkantu and um, the Pharaoh. I could see that. God. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, there's a lot of great setup here and then a real dud of an ending. Yeah. It, it feels, I don't know, almost like they ran out of time or something. Yeah, we don't get the part on the cover where Janice is getting carried away by Encantu. Which, that's a really great cover, I have to say. It is. Like, it is not easy to make a mummy look cool in a, in, uh, a still image like that, but, uh, but this one's pretty cool. Um, and I will say, similarly, the mummy's debut on sort of the splash page um, is similarly right. cool. Right, really good buck buckler artwork there i I, i'm curious it's a nice reveal i almost thought for a second maybe it might be better than the reveal of frankenstein monster in the first issue of that book but then i thought well no the frankenstein monster reveal had a little bit more build up to it right i mean they're both really good images but i think you're right that that the frankenstein book benefits from the building of suspense true and contu here appears on page two of actual story it's just right. that the shot that he appears in is a really good shot. Right. Although the perspective um, is way off. Sure. Well, that's that's been a problem throughout this episode, I think. <laughs> yeah. There have been weird there's been weird perspective all around. Even with elevation on his side, even with him being larger than an average person, there is no way he is that big. Like this soldier guy could easily walk between his legs. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still a good now it could be on a on a could be on a slope, possibly. But no, you're you're right. You're, you're right. That it's just weird perspective. Yeah. Um, I like how expressive the mummy's eyes are in close-ups. They kind of have to be. Well, sure, but that, that's something that like they, they make a point of calling your attention to. Um, and it's it's a nice touch. Um, but yeah, I I feel like the the last few panels they're setting up for some conflict between. Scarab and the mummy and um, Ron, Ron and, and Janice. Janice, but but not in a way that gives any indication of where that's going to go. No, like it literally just ends with the mummy maybe being dead, maybe not. Yep. And... But I mean, as far as as far as intro stories and origins go, um, it's I think it's better than Ghost Rider. Well, it's just I felt that I needed more to that story. Like it kind of a yeah. after the after the coolness that was the Simon Garth stuff and how satisfying the Simon Garth stuff was, this stuff here with the zombie mm -hmm. is just kind of, eh. yeah. I mean, it's it's trying to do the thing we always ask these stories to do. It's giving us the supporting cast, but it's not tying things together in a way that makes that supporting cast click with your main monster character. No, and I'm curious. What is going on here, and 
Ron and Janice are not as compelling as Donna was. Right, at least not yet. No, and they, they weren't as compelling as Frank Drake they're, and they're, Rachel and Helsing were. Like, right now, they mostly exist so that Scarab has someone to talk to. And I think part of that is they divert a large portion of the story to give an origin story for Nakantu. Right, I, which, it, it's structurally not all that different from the flashback structure of a Frankenstein issue. True. But even in the Frankenstein issue, I would say the supporting cast is weak, but we're not going to talk about it right now. Because with the Dracula issue, let's look at Dracula, Drac- oh, sorry, Tomb of Dracula number one. We we okay. felt for for Frank and his girlfriend and his, and his best friend, because I honestly think we spent more time with them because everyone knows who Dracula is. Everyone's fairly right. familiar with the story of Dracula, where they point they did not need to go back and give an origin story for Dracula right in there like imagine if like half of that issue had been cut out and they put in that marv wolfman story from dracula lives number one sorry dracula lives number two the origin story right in the middle there i think the impact of frank's girlfriend being turned into a servant of dracula at the end would have been nowhere near as impactful yeah i think you're that they could have done more to build the mystery of and Kantu, and maybe save the flashback for a second or third issue. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking that that might have been better here. Let's develop, um, and let's develop the supporting cast more. Build a bigger mystery around your mummy, and maybe build more suspicion toward between Ron and Janice towards Doctor Scarab. Mm-hmm. Let that be more of a slow burn as to what his relationship is to the mummy. Yes. You're like, mm, Dr. Scarab, you're really interested in getting a hold of this mummy. What's going on here? Also, and this is not related to that, but what is the deal with the mummy taking a nap on the floor in the middle of the issue? So he could be found by Ron and Janice and Dr. Scarab later without there being a big fight because he breaks in when they're there. It's just weird that he just lies down on the floor and takes a nap face down. I mean, I've done that before. Well, but... I don't. I didn't think mummies took naps. I need a whole other flashback now to explain why mummies take naps. But anyway, that was a weird moment. I didn't know what to do with. It was a weird issue and all. There, there's one panel near the end that doesn't go anywhere because most of the things in this issue don't really go anywhere. But when the mummy is affected by the tear gas, and so there are tears seeping out of the bandages. Yes, it definitely creates sympathy. Sympathy for Nagatu. I just. Yeah. They don't do anything with any of this. They have so much good yeah, setup, go and nothing gets paid off in the first issue. I get that it's a first issue, but at the same time, I need some some satisfaction in the issue I'm getting. This isn't a Brian right. Michael Bendis story where I'm, right. I have to pick up six issues to get a complete story. This is a Bronze Age Marvel comic book. I should have at least some sort of satisfactory story in it for the 20 cents I'm paying for it. Um, And like I say, this structure is straight out of most mummy movies from 1932 up to, I guess, the late 60s, early 70s. Like, they all sort of followed this structure. So I get why they did it this way. But also, most mummy movies 
have more scenes that endear you to your human characters. But really, now that I've said it, this so much feels like a modern story being written for the trade that it's just... It does. It, it's so jarring when we've gotten used to, to these kind of done-in-one vignettes that have subplots underneath. You know what? You know what this is? It's a Steve Gerber plot. And he was all about those long-form stories. But even Steve Gerber stuff has some satisfying aspects in the story itself, so you don't feel like, why did I just read this? Sure, sure. And, and I don't know that this is necessarily his most successful story. Um, but I that structure of introducing a bunch of things that you're not really going to do anything with yet, but they're going to pay off later, that that's a Steve Gerber thing, I think. It's just, unfortunately, almost nothing pays off in this first issue. Yeah, I think when we talked to Roy Thomas, he, he couldn't remember if he wrote this issue or not. Which, I can understand now after reading it, like, I won't remember this issue after reading it. Right, right. Well, like I said, I had totally forgotten the names of our two of our main characters. Except for Dr. Scarab. Well, you're not going to forget Dr. Scarab. He's, he's, he's a cartoon He is, with his incredibly plunging open collar with this that's what all the cool scientists are wearing these days are the cool scientists wearing scarab necklaces too probably i don't know i'm gonna cosplay as dr scarab (laughs) (laughs) you do that just so someone could come up to me oh my god you're dressed as dr scarab he's my favorite nobody in the world would ever say that (laughs) dr scarab is nobody's favorite He's not even Dr. Scarab's favorite. <laughs> no. And Kantu is Dr. Scarab's favorite. <laughs> no. Oh, yes. No. That, Dr. Scarab's <laughs> favorite is his um, great, 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 great granddaddy, I say in quotations because I'm pretty sure he's the same damn guy. Oh, yeah. Nefris. Nefris. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I think the worst thing about Dr. Scarab is that he doesn't even spell scarab right. Well, that would be a little bit too much on the nose, wouldn't it? I don't think it's possible to be any more on the nose than it already is. I mean, he's an Egyptologist. He wears a giant right? scarab necklace. Right. And his name is Dr. Scarab. Sure. He's got a great hairdo. That Oh yeah, yeah. His um, font. And the uh and and the the beard but no mustache. Hey, I've rocked that look before. Oh, I'm having so much more fun talking about this issue than you, with you than I had actually reading it. You know, I I wasn't mad about it. I I agree with you. Nothing happens in it, but I like I enjoyed the flashback sequence just because it reminded me of mummy movies I'd watched before. Um, the ending, like the the last, I don't know, three or four pages, disappointed me. Um, so I don't know. I'm I am curious to see where this goes next because this issue doesn't give a whole lot of indication of where it could go next. Um, but I, I, it's not the worst first issue I've read, but it's it's definitely middle to lower end. Yeah, I I I, I I'm I'm not struggling right now to figure out why the Living Mummy did not take off as a title. Right. No, I. And, and it makes sense that he would eventually just become more of, like, a supporting monster character in other books, like Legion of Monsters and stuff. Yeah. So, it's funny, like, uh, 
I don't know that even now I necessarily would want a modern like living mummy revival, but I would but I definitely get really excited every time he shows up in another book. Well, it's because it's that deep cut bronze age reference. Right. Like, oh my god, they brought back the living mummy. Who would have thought to bring him back? Whereas like like Dracula or Morbius or Werewolf, like you could you could revive those characters at any time and tell an interesting mini series or long form story with them. But but someone like the Mummy, I think, works best as this kind of character you re- revisit every once in a while, partly for novelty, partly for nostalgia. If that makes sense. Yes. So and maybe the other issues of this book will change my mind. But that's sort of where I'm at right now with him. All right, Trey, I think that means it is time to wrap things up on The Living Mummy. You, you, you yeah, see what I did there? Um, so, you, you wrap things oh, up. yeah, nice. I, I, I appreciate the pun. Um, I made a pun. But why don't you tell the lovely listeners what we're going to be talking about next time? That is a great question. Um, Vampire Tales number one featuring Maria Santuma Dragon. I didn't have that Google Doc open, okay? <laughs> Give me a second. I'm having to transfer from one episode, one Google Doc to a different Google Doc. <laughs> the Wi-Fi in the tomb is not great, okay? In our next episode, we will be looking at Vampire Tales number one, featuring Morbius, and Tomb of Dracula number 11. Right, and I'm really excited to come back to Morbius. We haven't talked about him since he appeared. Oh, goodness. Was it episode five in that Marvel team-up issue? Yeah, the one where uh, Spider-Man and Human Torch were jerks. No, 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 no. This is after that one. The oh, one where no. they left him in the custody That's of the right. X-Men. We had another one after that. That's right. That's right. I had forgotten about that I wonder one. if the X-Men are going to appear in this magazine. That would be fun. It would be. So, in any case, as you might have figured out from the, the two books we're looking at, we're shifting from Walking Dead to Bloodsuckers. Right. Um, and between now and then... Please, if you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear your feedback about the way we're structuring the Marvel Mag uh, read-throughs, or even just general thoughts about the show. You can reach us on Twitter at Tomb of Ideas. We uh, have an email account, uh, Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. Um, we're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. Right. And so we would love to hear from you. If it's something that you uh, would like for us to read on the air, uh, we, we would even do that. And uh, in addition to uh, our humble show, it's always uh, worth mentioning that we are part of the Cinepunks podcast group, which has a lot of other really great podcasts worth listening to. Um, our sister show is uh, The Flight Stuff, doing an issue-by-issue read-through of Alpha Flight, starting with the original John Byrne issues. There's also the main Cinepunks site, which covers movies and other pop culture. And there's just a lot of really great stuff out there. Um, So please go to Cinepunks.com and check out some of their other content. Right. We really look forward to hearing from you. We want to hear what you think about the issues we've talked about, your thoughts. We'd love to read them on the air. And what your thoughts, if you've already read some of the stuff we have upcoming, like that Vampire Tales number one and Tomb of Dracula issue... Your thoughts on the issues we'll be covering. We'll read them on the air while we're covering the issue. Yeah, so things we've covered already, things we're looking to cover, um, things related to things we're covering. Like, if you, like, like I don't know about you, but I found out about Morbius through the Spider-Man cartoon. So when I talk about Morbius, I tend to come back to that. 
if you have a different experience with some of these characters, bring that to the table because we would love to hear about it. Right. I do want to give a brief shout out to one of our Twitter followers, Edward III, who did give us some feedback on our previous episode, specifically um, the the shared hurt of the film Carnival Magic. <laughs> uh, what, um, oh, I, I'm just now seeing those replies. Um, yes, uh, Suffered Through is exactly right when referencing Carnival Magic. It is not a film you will watch. It is a film Exactly. You Even with the Mystery Science Theater 3000 commentary, that film was rough. Right. Right. And, of course, that's in uh, reference to uh, comments we made uh, about the Werewolf by Night issue, which is set at a car. Yes. Yes. So, anyway, thank you so much, Edward. We want to hear more from you and from the rest of you, our lovely listeners. So, please get in touch with us. But I think, Trey, that does do it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. Right. Um, after all, when there's no more room in hell, the dead walk the earth. Or podcast. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers. Excelsior! <laughs>